I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Wonky Show. The Future Research Assessment Programme has reported we'll discuss whether its recommendations fix the issues that researchers raise. Uh, There's a new report out on awarding gaps. There's advice on recruiting international students. And English studies is in better health than we thought. It's all coming up. You know, we do have a bit of siloing when it comes to uh, a decision that, say, one institution makes, a university, to recruit international students, whether or not that's uh, feeding into or informing or able to influence uh, the decision around, say, uh, a a local authority or a uh, a student accommodation uh, organization to build for the housing in that area. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me as usual to get across the week's news, three fantastic guests. Uh, in Newington Green, Omar Khan is Director at Tazo. Omar, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was us launching our report on the Ethnicity Degree Awarding Gap. Uh, that's a bit self-referential, but we're going to be talking about that later. Yes, and a great report it is too. In Waterbeach in Cambridgeshire, Sally Burtonshaw is Associate Director Education at Public First. Sally, your highlight of the week, please. Morning, Jim. Uh, my my highlight is mainly that it is the right temperature for me, finally. Uh, after spending most of the year freezing, I am now the right uh, temperature and everybody else is too hot. Well, that's also... going to wind up the audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to hear from everybody about uh, their estates and what does and doesn't work in this heat across uh, UK universities, which I think we've yeah. been hearing a lot more of this week. Yes, and in Heaton in Newcastle, Livia Scott is our Student Union Community and Policy Officer. Livia, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week was definitely travelling to Dublin to go see Harry Styles at Slane Castle. Um, I've still got the blisters to prove it. (laughs) Excellent stuff. Good now, yes, so we start this week with FRAP, and there's big news for researchers, Sally. There is indeed. So FRAP, the Future Research Assessment Programme, has reported. So we are saying goodbye to FRAP and hello to our next REF cycle for REF 2028. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, I think it is, it is exciting. Uh, it is also, I think, um, something that we need to remember is not exciting to everybody. Um, and I think that uh, when we talk about research and research impact, we probably also need to take a step back and think about um, not just talking to ourselves and within the sector and to people who know lots about research, but also to the public. And I'm not sure that necessarily that FRAP and REF do a particularly good job of doing that. But parking that for now. Um, the the FRAP sort of asked the question, what will REF look like in 2028? And inevitably, that says different from 2021. Uh, and um, I think there are, there are some people who are always asking, why why can't we have exactly the same? And we can make lovely comparisons and make more league tables uh, and create, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, of metrics um, through REF. But we, we definitely don't want uh, REF to be stagnant. Um, and I think that the, the constant refreshing is really positive. And this seems to have been received positively by the sector so far. Um, People will be pleased to know it's not wholesale change. Um, and the, the sort of feedback around regulatory burden, um, which kind of is disproportionately incurred by the, the sort of changing requirements, um, is being minimised. Um, so we've got some key changes. Um, the, probably the, the most notable of which is the move away from focusing on individual sort of superstar researchers um, and looking at a more holistic approach. Um, so the departments can submit um, research outputs and we talk about outputs much more broadly as well. 
that are equivalent to 2.5 times um, full-time staff. Um, but these can come from a much broader staff base. And that's really, really notable now that we are not kind of relying on a few um, researchers, but on whole departments and teams. Um, there'll be a narrative submission to explain sort of the decisions made on that. Um, we've also got some new terminology. Um, so uh, outputs uh, are now contributions to knowledge and understanding. Uh, impact is en uh, engagement and impact and environment is people and culture. Uh, and notably, the uh, the sort of balance is changing as well. So outputs are now 50%, um, while the contribution to knowledge and understanding will be 50%. And engagement and impact and people and culture will be 25% um, each. Um, there is a consultation with a refreshingly reasonable time frame. I don't know if anyone from the OFS is listening. Reasonable time frame for a consultation. <laughs> Love it. Um, which is the uh, the 6th of October for the sector to, to get engaged and feedback on some of the more specific um, uh, parts of the, the proposals. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's kind of... Um, a really kind of notable move forward um, for REF and for the sector. And this obviously sits in the context of some of the other work going on in this space. Uh, so the government's own people and culture strategy, the nurse review and the review of research bureaucracy. So lots going on in this space. And I think so far it looks like the FRAP has managed to kind of harness that, um, the, the kind of positive outputs for change, um, but kind of take the sector uh, on, on this journey as well. Omar, we've had, uh, we've, ha we've had Paul Nurse on the research landscape, Adam Tickell on research bureaucracy, and both of those reports really um, put kind of meat on the bones of lots of commentary, certainly that I see on social media about uh, some of the kind of downsides of the previous exercises. What's your sense about the extent to which this responds to the critique of uh, the ref? Certainly responds to some of the critique in terms of, uh, you know, weighting uh, people and culture more. Uh, arguably, that may mean as well that departments will focus on things um, like the proportion of staff who are on uh sort of full-time, long-term contracts. Um, there's a lot of concern, obviously, in the sector about, uh, especially from the point of view of junior researchers, how much uh, demands there were to produce, uh, publish research quickly, but also the nature of the contracts that they were on. Um, and if environment statements and that sort of people and culture is focused on not just, uh, you know, the metrics in terms of how many women or ethnic minorities are employed. Previous to REF, there was a focus on how far there were um, departments had a commitment to ensuring the growth of junior researchers. Um, and that may be something that, again, is uh, emphasized more with this uh, renewed focus. Selin also noted that there's possibly less uh, reliance on superstar researchers. And I think on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, there may be actually an opportunity in that focus on having 2.5 submissions uh, per person that some uh, researchers could be submitting six or seven. Uh, departments could be putting forward more than 2.5, obviously, for some which might look like a burden for those, but perhaps there are more sort of senior uh, researchers for whom that will be more straightforward. And it may relieve the burden on junior researchers or those whose personal circumstances mean that they were less able to produce refable outputs uh, during uh, the period of the ref. Uh, and so arguably that may encourage uh, universities and departments to hire junior staff, even if it's uncertain that their research outputs will be refable. There was a concern, I think, that the whole focus of the REF meant that uh, departments were cautious about how they hired junior researchers and how they invested in those researchers' progression. And with this increased focus, the increased proportion of the weighting of the REF on people and culture, perhaps we'll see not just um, an improvement in the number of uh, women and black and minority ethnic uh, researchers, if those uh, EDI metrics become part, uh, sort of 
a crucial part of it. And it will depend, of course, on how, how good those data are. Yes, this, this, this issue about uh, research culture is interesting, isn't it, Livia? Because on, on, on the one hand, to some extent, it responds to quite a bit of the kind of commentary around uh, the way in which the previous exercise would kind of place pressure on individuals and, and, and not focus sufficiently on stuff like EDI. But on the other hand, there will be a bunch of people that will be arguing, well, this is woke nonsense. I mean, yeah, perhaps they will. But I, I think that shifting it away to focus on people and particularly the bit around looking at what makes a good, healthy research culture and research environment for, I think it mentions for both junior and senior academics, is really is really quite helpful. So I think that like particularly when you're thinking about PGRs who are going to become junior academics, if you can say that as an institution, look, we've got a really healthy research culture here, um, as shown in XYZ, I think that, that can only be a good thing, really. Now, 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 now Sally, you, you made the point earlier that um, you, you, you felt it kind of felt a bit like a kind of, you know, quite internally focused. Just just unpack that a bit. Yeah, well, I think when it comes to, to research excellence and, and impact, we, we have a sort of tension, which is simultaneously that research impact is incredibly important um, and it underpins a huge amount of what uh, we, we achieve through higher education um, and how we impact on the wider world. But simultaneously, um, it's really hard to explain to people and um, the, the layperson finds it fairly dull for the most part. Um, and I think that there are some, some really important ways in which we can, as a, as a HE body and community, think more about how we convey that information and, and how we engage the, the public uh, in those discussions, rather than saying, we have got a bunch of metrics that only we can understand, and we think that we're telling ourselves that we are really good. Um, and I think we do, you know, REF is an important part of that discussion, um, but it is not the only part. And I think being too self-congratulatory and or too focused on, on REF means that we leave that very important part of the discussion. And the result of that means that we, we look less relevant to the public uh, and to government. Uh, and I think that that kind of creates a cycle in which we, we end up kind of becoming more and more isolated. I do think that it's, it's great to have this like institution-led focus. My only, I think my only concern is someone who was sat on a lot of the kind of internal REF boards as an officer last year is that this becomes a way to kind of an institutional ranking. Um, and obviously that's, in, in some sense, it, it is that, but wasn't there, there was a case of, I can't remember the university that was kind of told, please don't advertise we are top of whatever in ref because it's not it's not necessarily meant to be like a league table as such. Um, so I think my only concern is it becomes a slightly more competitive space. I know it already is for kind of funding and things like that, but it becomes something that universities are like, we are number whatever in the ref and it's, that's not really, I think, the the, for, the purpose of making it institution-led. Yes, Omar, I guess the danger is that um, even, even though the, 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 the idea of that kind of focus on people and culture might be to, and, and, the, and the move towards groups is, is partly about reducing competition between researchers in an institution, doesn't change the fact that this is fundamentally about competing with other institutions for money. Yes, and I think that's always been a gap in the sort of HE policy landscape, both that there's a sort of policy and funding uh, involved with the research bit that a university does, and then there's policy uh, and funding related to things like widening access and participation uh, and the impact in the world that um, universities can have in terms of things like business and innovation. I do think the REF, with these twin focuses on impact, which can hopefully uh, increase the sort of focus that universities put on linking to uh, not just sort of businesses, but communities, uh, civil society organizations and charities locally, um, and also that focus on people and culture. I mean, obviously, there's a link there to the PGR, uh, postgraduate research community that Livia has mentioned. That may 
allow universities to link better their research agenda with uh, their wider agenda as civic institutions. A couple of pieces on the site uh, already. Plenty of commentary to come over the next week. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Jules Singh, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the challenges of commuter students. Commuter students choose to live off campus, but by doing so, they are often overlooked and face significant hurdles on their higher education journey. Recent public transport strikes and the lingering effects of COVID-19 have made it even harder for them to get to campus and engage fully with the traditional university experience. They often feel isolated and struggle to make friends due to limited social opportunities. Logistical issues with how universities even define commuter students even further compound their challenges. It's crucial that we prioritise improving the commuter student experience, from forming partnerships with transport companies to conducting research to better understand their needs. So my plea to the sector is let's get commuter students back on the agenda. Now, the sector lacks confidence in addressing ethnicity degree awarding gaps, according to a new report this week, Livia. So this week, we've had a new report from Tezo looking at tackling ethnicity degree awarding gaps. So particularly looking at how the sector is attempting to tackle to close that gap. So when we talk about the ethnicity awarding gap, we are referring to the fact that students from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds are less likely to graduate their studies with a 2-1 or a first class honours degree than their white peers. And this gap is particularly starkest for black students. Um, there's been mixed evidence so far, really, on kind of how how the sector is doing on this. It's it's part of a lot of APP plans and the report goes through, I think there's nearly 250 APP plans and really assesses kind of what the sector has been doing so far to try and tackle this because very few, there's been like very little evaluation of it so far. And I think what's really interesting about the report is it comes out that there's been this drag and drop approach to tackling this. There's been around 16 approaches so far when you consider there's 250 reports. It's, it's not that many approaches. Um, and so far, I think institutions are very much looking to other institutions and being like, well, what's that uni down the road doing? We'll try that rather than thinking, OK, well, our students are this. Our students have these characteristics. Perhaps this type of intervention would work better. And I think that's the, the report's really quite good at highlighting that. Yes. Now, Omar, I mean, you know, you're right in the thick of this, obviously. Um, you, you, th- th- there is a real tension, isn't there, between what the sector regards as good or best practice and then what other people would say is important, which is to actually talk to your actual students who are actually experiencing the gaps and then to kind of work closely with them to determine what might work. In an environment where we don't yet know what works, it, that is a tricky balance to strike. Yeah, that's right. And I think Livy's done a good job of summarising both the existing research and what the report found. The report did say that engaging students is a crucial part of developing interventions, but also developing evaluations so that students understand, uh, you know, what are the interventions or what are the measures that um, universities are taking to try to tackle this gap better than they are presently, how they ensure that they engage students in that. I mean, one of the findings as well is that many students didn't necessarily know there was an ethnicity degree awarding gap until they came onto campus. So many Black and Asian students don't necessarily know that when they're made an offer and when they start at university. So it might come first as a surprise or even a shock to them that such a gap exists. And then obviously uh, making sure that we uh, explain and engage that uh, in the first instance. But as you say, there's also a task of universities understanding 
sort of in the round or collectively, what are the gaps for that particular institution, that particular provider? And we did find, as 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 uh, Livia summarized, a kind of drag and drop approach. I do think there's also an interesting question on the fact that part of the reason for the drag and drop approach may have been the way in which providers interpreted or understood the target that existed previously in uh, by the OFS for uh, universities to respond to. And there was a somewhat almost mechanical uh, way of referring to that target. And I think that raises some interesting questions about do targets and how do targets uh, effectively incentivize behavior? Does that lead to behavior change? Uh, do targets actually, if, especially if they're very ambitious, that was a comment, uh, lead to discouragement when it becomes evident, as it is the case for this gap, that we're very unlikely to see that gap closed in the next year? We do think the target of closing the gap over time is the one that we want to achieve. But if the target is how are you ensuring that your institution is going to reduce that gap to zero by next year, which is what the target was, and it's evident that that is not going to be achieved, how do we continue to motivate and uh, ensure that people are focused on this gap uh, while also not discouraging them? Um, At the same time, the, the regulator sending a signal that this is an important area of work that's obviously the reason why there's 249 references yeah. to it in the various. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, yeah, lots of people are prioritising it. It's the it's it's the how they do it, isn't it? I mean, it's, Sally, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting was this sense that students that are kind of impacted by and, and are the target of um, APPs really need to be engaged in you know, the actual development of, of approaches rather than just kind of coming in at the end and nodding in a, in a committee. And uh, obviously there's a bunch of universities doing their AP, their new APP early this year. And I'm already getting feedback from student unions that are involved in that process that are saying, well, they're not really being involved properly. They're not really being supported to engage the students that are the target of these approaches. How, what's your sense of, of, of how universities are at really involving students in the development of thinking rather than just the kind of, you know, the, the nodding of it in a committee yeah i think it raises a a sort of interesting tension doesn't it because i'm we students are a really important voice in this i and if you ever ask students and i think you i I work across schools and higher education and if you ask students uh, in different settings they are very quickly able to to sort of tell you about their experiences um and and what works and what doesn't for them um, so I don't think we are always good at, at kind of working with those students to, to kind of hear their voices. I think the, the flip side to that is when we talk about what works, um, we often find ourselves, I think, in, in access and participation in particular, uh, in a, a position where everybody risks reinventing the wheel. We don't share best practice very effectively in access and participation, I think, um, as demonstrated by the fact that... It is Although we do copy huge, and paste it, apparently. <laughs> well, there's a huge amount of work gone on to find out what is in all the APPs. Um, and it just struck me that as a sort of process point, that should be much easier to do if we are trying to kind of promote the idea of the sector sharing best practice. Um, it should be easier to do... Than, than having to review every individual APP at length to find uh, find references to this. Um, but I, th- you know, so I think that there is a balance between understanding what has worked in different contexts, um, drawing on the expertise um, that has been used to develop that, and then looking at how that should be applied in in your own specific institutional context. And in that at that point, I think that is very much the, the point in which we need to be engaging with students to understand how that is how that works for them and how they understand it. Mm. Um, so I don't think we should be emphasising that students just come up with solutions to all these problems. We need to be taking some ownership of that as well. Olivia, one of my reflections reading it was there there is a possibility that some of the sort of headline, um, you know, kind of copy and paste approaches 
won't have that much of an impact on the awarding gap, but are nevertheless really, really important to the groups of students who often have been advocating for them for a long time, uh, often in the face of ad- adversity and opposition. So is this all about the actual access and participation metrics, or is some of this just about the right thing to do? It's, it's difficult, isn't it? I think it is really hard. I think that this part of me, so one of the things that the report says is that developing curricula and kind of changing that is actually, that is one of the most common approaches, but it is not as effective as kind of everybody using it would suggest. But I think there is still, and maybe maybe I'm harking back to when I was a sad, but there is still, I think, space for having a diverse and inclusive curriculum. We know that students, when they see that, they kind of rate, they, they, they see the, the the department as being kind of a more um, a, a better place to be, a more welcoming place to be. But also, they're like, my degree is is of a higher quality because I'm learning lots of different things. But I think there is a lot of, and I don't want to say it's virtue signaling, but a lot of stuff that we should be seen to be doing because it is the right thing. Yes, I'm not saying it might meet all of the APP targets, but there's a lot of student activists and just students in general who would appreciate you saying, right, okay, well what do you want? Or we're going to raise awareness. We're not going to sweep this under the rug because I think for a lot of students who either don't know about this or are just kind of learning about this, they probably do feel like it has been swept under the rug for too long. So being seen to say, we do have an ethnicity award degree awarding gap, but this is what we're trying to do to change it. But please tell us what you think. I think goes a long way. I'm not saying it's going to solve it, but I think it would go a long way for campus as a whole. Yes, Omar, I mean, you know, this is absolutely your bread and butter, isn't it, this? This, 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 you know, presumably there are all sorts of initiatives that can have a kind of broad impact on an environment, but you might not be able to prove cause and effect between someone pulling lever Y and a metric changing. Yes, and I think that was one of the reasons we commissioned this report at this phase. It's not a what works approach. It doesn't tell us what works now. We felt we first needed to clear, you know, look at the evidence of what's actually happening on the ground before we help support providers to design evaluations that tell them what works. I really want to pick up the Olivia's point around there are other reasons, or, or and your point indeed, why we might, for example, want to diversify the curriculum. I absolutely agree with that point. In fact, the report, one of the reasons that we focus in the report on as a recommendation on uh, developing theories of change is there, there may be a story or a mechanism through which diversifying the curriculum um, impacts on the degree awarding gap of the sort that Livia described. For example, uh, students who who previously felt their curriculum was not very diverse might have been less likely to enjoy their course and less likely to do uh, to to engage well on course and to do well in terms of course assessments, and so therefore we're less likely to to get a first or two one. But that kind of logic chain or that kind of mechanism, what are the routes through which the intervention you're making has an impact on the outcome you're trying to achieve? I think we need a lot more of that from the sector in evaluating uh, interventions generally, but also in this space. I don't think, I think it's fine to say that an intervention has many uh, good outcomes, but then we need to sort of, I think the danger is that you then don't specify how the, what is the link between the intervention you're making and the outcome you're trying to achieve. And there's also danger, I think, if an intervention has many multiple outcomes that it's not very well designed or targeted on each of them. So, for example, you know, if you have an intervention that's focused both on improving belonging and an improving uh, assessment, uh, it might not be particularly good at doing either. And so, it, it's important to specify, you know, the, the mechanism through which you think that that that's going to happen. And of course, the degree awarding gap is a is a huge issue, not just for 
black and minority ethnic students experience at university but how well they do in the labour market. Good. Now the sun's out and our mind turns to festivals. Mark is here with details of one of our own. The Festival of Higher Education is coming. This November, Wonky and the University of London will welcome you to Senate House for two amazing days of one-to-one conversations with HE leaders, set-piece debates and insights from journalists, policymakers and experts. You'll hear from speakers inside and outside the sector, take part in amazing interactive sessions, learn about new research, data and ideas, and meet colleagues old and new. All equipping you with the fresh thinking and insights ready to take back and share with your universities and teams. It's going to be an unmissable event for anyone with an interest in the future of UK higher education. That's 7th and 8th of November in London. Early bird tickets are available only until the end of June, so do hurry if you want to take advantage of these. Find out more and book your tickets at thefestivalofhe.com or follow the links from Wonky. We can't wait to see you in November. Now, Universities UK International has published a report this week on the diversification of international student recruitment. What's going on here, Omar? Well, yes, UUK International has released this report on the diversification of international student recruitment. And it does give some insight, I think, into the current recruitment practices across the sector. Obviously, uh, looking at what universities are actually doing in terms of their international recruitment is important for the sector, given the level of political and public interest uh, in this issue. Nearly half or 45% of respondents reported that their institutions asked postgraduate students whether there were any dependents that would travel with them. That's obviously uh, a rising political issue and the policy change that's uh, about to be implemented in January, uh, and 17% more considering doing so. Uh, UK International suggests that providers should consider this as a way to provide better advice and support to those international students. And um, there was also uh, a recommendation around uh, issuing students with a confirmation of acceptance for studies, which included intensive conversational elements or checking for looking uh, off camera and lip syncing. Um, The report also recommends that institutions review deposit requirements, so the amount of funds uh, that international students have available, uh, and that's to help ensure what they say, uh, to to help ensure and uh, what they say are genuine students and intent on studying. There's obviously a lot of concern both in the public, but also amongst the uh, political class about the genuineness of some international students. Um, it was notable, I thought, that the, the size of the deposit was quite large already, but ranged significantly from £3,500 to £14,000. Uh, it was also notable, I thought, that uh, the amount of deposit required did vary uh, about a quarter of the time, according to a country's a student's country of domicile. Now, Sally, uh, you know how this goes, right? So uh, an issue comes up, the sector will say, well, don't regulate, we will self-regulate. And so, you know, with my cynical hat on, which I occasionally wear in public and certainly on social media, notwithstanding the fact that there are only 60 respondents here, how are we in a position where only 55% of universities responding use the agent quality framework that's designed to deal with dodgy agents. Okay, so I think that this is a this is at heart a technocratic report. Um and I think that's it is really important um that we we get this stuff right. Um so yes, I think a lot of this is is being framed um as as really positive. Um I think there is a huge amount of good practice here that and and kind of a reminder to the sector um, of what we should be doing as a minimum. Um, if we want to be um, recruiting the numbers of international students we are currently recruiting going forwards. Um, I think that that is all hugely important, all the stuff that, that Omar has, has outlined, and we need as a sector to really be taking that to heart. Um, and, and that needs to be those figures around kind of who is engaging um, with, with that best practice need to be much, much higher than, than 55%. Um, I think that in talking about this, I 
and and this has been kind of apparent, I think, in some of the sector discussions um, over the past couple of days, is I think we need to be careful that we don't get bogged down um, in saying, firstly, that we're really awesome as a sector. Um, when when that maybe uh, could be be arguable in this space um, on occasion, um, but also uh, that we we don't forget the picture that we can be compliant, um, but we haven't won hearts and minds. Um, and I think that is that is probably this issue is probably the most important um, example of this at the moment about winning hearts and minds. Um, so if the sector wants to keep recruiting international students, we need the support of of the public and we need the support of government. And I think unless we really think about that, we risk losing both. Um, so when we are thinking about international students and talking about international students, rather than saying we use agents that meet these requirements, we should be saying, obviously, we do that. But also there are a whole bunch of other things that we need to be doing. So I think we need to start articulating students as more than just numbers, um, whether that's compliance numbers or economic impact. Those things are important. Um, but I don't think that they necessarily help um, our, our local communities to understand kind of why, why international students are coming are coming to, to the UK and what benefits they bring. I think we also need to have a really honest conversation about the downsides of international students, um, whether that is around kind of the, the, the strain they sometimes put on public services or housing issues, which I know you've talked about loads. We need to be having honest conversations about those trade-offs and what we are doing about that. Um, I think we need to talk about the, the concern about what is happening after those students graduate. Um, we've got destinations data, we've got outcomes, uh, we can look at case studies, we need to be putting that across. Um, and I think we also, uh, we need to be talking about that local picture um, so much more. All of these things are nuanced by local environments. And I think in some places that's a real concern. And simply saying we have these guide guidelines that we are apply adhering to um, is, is not going to be enough. And we need to seize that moment and make sure that if we want to continue to recruit international students and have this thriving HE sector, um, we need to be working much more on the rhetoric around that. Now, Olivia, obviously there's a, there's a couple of areas in here that, that certainly we talk to students' unions a lot about. One is housing and one is um you know agents and you know i guess that dependent issue politicians will think that's fixed because an announcement has been made people won't be able to apply for a dependent visa from you know first of january 2024 but for the next two quarters of intakes there's likely there to be therefore to be a huge increase in as people try to kind of get under you know in in, in before the, the, the the doors come down and you know, it's probably a bit late to be thinking about engaging with a better quality agent that doesn't lie about the availability of accommodation. It's probably a bit late to be building family accommodation for September or January. It's way too late. Like, no university is going to sign off on building a bunch of accommodate a bunch of family accommodation for September when it's quote unquote not going to be useful anymore after January. I think what was quite interesting was that th the report does recommend that we should still when recruiting students, ask students if they've got plans to bring dependents. But I think what would be good in that is to make sure that when we're asking that question, that international students do not feel like that is a kind of, we want to know because we're going to potentially not give you a place because of that, especially when you've got kind of the home office creating a little bit more of a hostile environment for international students or international students bringing dependents. So I think it's important that we kind of are letting students know that they're still allowed to bring them in September and we will support them. We're asking this question so that we can best kind of provide them with accommodation, with school places, whatever it might be. But I, I do think there was something in there that said we recommend you come in um, like the international student arriving first. And then if you're still planning on bringing dependents, finding a home and then bringing everybody over, which is fair enough. But when you've got kind of a, a last minute panic and from speaking to ex-international students who are still part of a lot of like these whatsapp chats with other international students the the pan they're not that people are just going to bring their families now while they can and i think 
it also if even if they come over first it's suggesting that there is housing in a lot of the cases they could come and look for months that there isn't any family accommodation there um so a lot of people are just like i'll risk it for the few months when i'm still allowed and i'll i'll come which i honestly don't blame them omar i mean if we zoom out a little bit on 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 this particular issue the dependent issue which fundamentally is about surprise right you know it, the, the the volumes have taken the home office uh, universities by surprise the question i keep coming back to is you know how how do we how do we not get future surprises and and one of the things i felt was kind of missing here maybe you know maybe it's just not that kind of report was properly seeking to understand the students that we're recruiting if we haven't recruited lots of that sort of student before? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I originally came to the UK as an international student at a very different time, though, in the late 90s. And so, obviously, um, I was I was younger and I didn't have a dependent at the time, and I was probably more typical of the international student uh, experience uh, in, in, those, in that period. And as you say, the evidence shows that there are now uh, many more students coming uh, with dependents. I think this is a wider issue for policymakers in terms of planning well around you know, the growth, for example, even of university places generally, the number of 18-year-olds. Are we doing enough uh, to link up some of the demographic trends that we might be seeing in the next five to 10 years uh, with the provision of, for example, housing or transport? Um, and I think uh, you know, we do have a bit of siloing when it comes to uh, a decision that, say, one institution makes, a university to recruit international students, whether or not that's uh, feeding into or informing or able to influence uh, the decision around, say, um, a, a local authority or a, um, a student accommodation uh, organization to build for the housing in that area. Um, and yes, I think, you know, it's one of the really important reasons why having good data and trying to understand not just how many students are coming, but as you say, Jim, the nature of those students and their expectations on arrival, uh, that's important not just for the for the university, but as you say, uh, for these other issues in terms of access to accommodation, public services, and whether or not there's adequate provision for them. I'd also note, though, that it's interesting, I mean, as someone who's worked in the field of race and immigration, in not in the higher education sector, uh, when you look at public attitudes to immigration, um, international students are actually one of the most favorable um, uh, cohorts of immigrants amongst uh, the public. So uh, the British public is more favorably disposed towards international students um, than other uh, forms of migrants. And of course, there's a question about whether or not international students should be counted uh, in the migration uh, figures. Obviously, that the, 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 the way that both the sector and I think to some extent the public talk about international students is not necessarily reflective of the kind of contemporary uh, international student picture, which is characterized by really very, very rapid expansion and you know in some in some areas in Canada where there's been really really rapid expansion attitudes have um, turned much more negative and I, ju I just wonder about the, the, the you know in many ways if I think both about the wider public attitudes around immigration and also about uh, international students uh, the, the thread all the way through that makes things difficult is the rapidity of expansion yeah absolutely so um so we did some, some polling um at public affairs with with UK recently um and um the public are, are really supportive um of of international students um as a, as Omar said a sort of a subsection um of, of international migration um so, uh, yeah, sixty-four percent of respondents believe that the UK should host the same or more international students. Um, so we're seeing sort of a, a really, really positive framing there. I think my concern is that, and we are seeing this in kind of when we're doing work in particular areas, um, is that that 
that change is going to be seen differently in different parts of the UK. Um, and we know that, you know, London, for example, is not without huge problems um, in terms of kind of student accommodation and housing, but as a, as a larger city, um, is more able uh, uh, to kind of um, absorb additional international students in many ways without kind of uh, individual um, part of your communities and, and parts of London necessarily feeling kind of particularly um, overcrowded. Um, if you take and, and see a, you know, one particular area, you know, a small industrial town in, in the UK, um, that picture might look very different. And I think if we're not looking at those nuances, um, we may well be kind of congratulating ourselves that, that kind of international students are embraced um, you know, across the UK. And that might not actually be true in some of those particular locations and um, that particular higher education institutions are in. I think we really need to be thinking about that um, when we're thinking about sort of institutions of have particularly rapid expansion or in particularly kind of smaller communities um, that that might be noted. And I think it's also important to say against the backdrop of kind of increasing tension around wider migration. Um, one of the, the things that I think we need to be thinking about is um, do local communities know who international students are? Because theoretically, in, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, thinking that international students are, are a good thing is very different if you see people who look other to you um, in your communities and um, who you perceive to be kind of causing pressures or whatever kind. If that is not well managed, I think we end up seeing tensions between communities and students that are absolutely not those international students' fault. Um, and then that becomes a kind of a real a real issue that we should be able to be to avoid in, in those local places. Yes, both both good campus relations and good community relations becomes important, doesn't it? Uh, good, good stuff. Now, let's pay the bills. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, finally this week, the British Academy has been talking about English, Livia. They have. So they've been talking about English. And we've seen a lot in the media, I think, about that English studies. So that's like English literature, English language and creative writing has been on the decline. It's the death of English studies. And we've seen few English departments closing. But there is big declines, I think, at undergraduate level. But what this British Academy report really shows is that it's a much more nuanced picture. And it's not the end for English studies. In fact, when you look at PGT and PGR courses, 
particularly with creative writing, they're doing really well. And there's rising undergraduate numbers in Scotland specifically. And I think it was interesting, the kind of look from the kind of the amount of students doing English literature or English language at A-level and kind of how that translates into into university study and all of that. And it is the undergraduate like numbers are on the decline, but particularly around PGT and that creative writing piece, I think those those have skyrocketed when you look at the 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 stats the British Academy have got and I think it's quite interesting a bit of a clap back to say to a lot of the media who are like look English is it's 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 the death of the English degree it doesn't get you a job it doesn't get you this that and the other when in fact a lot of students are still picking these degrees and loving them and going on to do brilliant things. Sally, there's no getting away from it, though, is there? I mean, you know, the the number of first degree undergraduates taking English studies has declined by 20% since 2012. I mean, that is a thing, given, you know, there's been all sorts of other expansion in the sector. Absolutely. I I come at this from a a history undergraduate perspective. So, uh, and I know this this has also been in in the news recently. Um, uh, So, yeah, I think it is. It's a, it's a, it's a problem, and I think that what I what I think the report does a good job of addressing is is saying we don't only always want to talk about the challenges, and here are some real positives. And I think that that is good. We know at the moment people are turning off the news because um, everything is life is too challenging. I think sometimes as a sector we we don't kind of uh, think enough about the positives and and how they might kind of manifest themselves into to other benefits and how we can use them. Um, but I think that kind of this speaks more broadly to to kind of how we value um different different subjects uh and different courses and that kind of the narrative from government for a really quite a long time now around kind of uh, low value courses um, and kind of the support for, for different subjects. Um, and so I think that this is sort of, we're starting to, to see that that borne out. Um, and actually there's been some really interesting work led by um, Professor Joe Fox at the School of Advanced Studies thinking about how we can promote the value um, of humanities um, research uh, and, and kind of humanities more broadly and thinking about sort of local communities, um, the benefits of sort of connections and the creation of jobs. Um, and I think we really want to be on the front foot in talking about those positive stories whilst recognising the challenges that we know kind of we are seeing across uh, lots of different humanities. I would also like to note that I am clear that humanities are not necessarily one homogenous block. Um, so it is also important to talk about English and history um, as separate separate disciplines as well. Omar, if I kind of summarise and synthesise the sort of thing I see on the Twitter about about this, it, it would be that when if you've got 20% less students, what starts to happen is that the, the everyone kind of loses some and then the remaining students end up filling the places further up the league tables. And so combine a 20% reduction in demand with the, the kind of expansion of HE and league tables and markets and suddenly it puts you know, English degrees under threat in large parts of the country where there's perhaps only one university. And and that that geographical distribution is a concern, isn't it? Yes, I think it is a concern. And I think uh, kind of aligned to that concern is that certain kinds of institutions, high tariff institutions, will continue to offer English literature and it will, uh, you'll see departments close in, in, in lower tariff uh, places. And obviously that's an issue not just in terms of widening access and participation, the kinds of institutions where students on free school meals are more likely to attend, uh, but also the diversity of provision. Um, I This is not my area of expertise, but the report highlights the fact that the kinds of um, courses, the kinds of syllabus, the kinds of uh, experience that you might have on an English degree vary quite a lot by provider. And so the narrowing, yes, the narrowing of of provision may also narrow the range of of uh, English literature studied, and as we know, English literature is a very broad global uh, phenomenon. I think the other thing is the 
the sort of point that I didn't really fully understand from this report that this report highlights is, um, and again, I'm not well placed to uh, judge it, but they there is a strong claim there that the change in assessment at GCSE and A level English has had a detrimental effect. So I think a kind of twin uh, pincer movement on at least English literature and possibly other humanities, whereby changes in in how uh, English is assessed and and uh, viewed uh, at at so in secondary school, so sort of that is reducing the demand there. And then, as you've discussed, uh, and as Sally's mentioned as well, uh, a focus on labor market outcomes, whereby certain humanities degrees appear to have uh, worse labor market outcomes. And that's something that obviously, uh, in terms of both employment rates and in terms of wage rates, and that is obviously putting pressure uh, on that end as well, in terms of the supply that universities may be willing uh, to offer in terms of number of uh, students on course. So as somebody who's done history degrees fairly recently, and I think the Royal Historical Society stuff around kind of this feast or famine that, so the history degrees, they're not declining the numbers of people doing them. But I do think it's interesting they're talking about this kind of unpredictable spikes in student numbers. And even when student numbers have really increased, departments or they've done really well in the ref, to link it back to earlier, they've still faced cuts and they've still potentially faced cuts in the kind of number of staff that are there. And I think it's really interesting that these these degrees that are so I asked all my flatmates who all did history degrees like why did you do them and all that sort of stuff but I asked them because I was I was curious and they they said that a lot of the skills that they kind of got from their degrees they wouldn't be able to do the jobs that they now do but they think that they were very much not kind of explained to us we had to do a lot of like soul searching to kind of work out what the history degree was kind of given us to make us more employable and i'm not saying that we should give everybody on history and english degrees employability modules that's not why they study history but i do think there's an element of public understanding of these courses are often dismissed so a lot of like family friends of mine are like are you going to be a history teacher going to be a historian i'm like no i'm just i love history and i'm getting a lot of extra skills from it but I think that pu- the public understanding of that is really limited and I think that that might put off a lot of first in family students who might pick something more quote-unquote employable than English or history. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Omar, Sally, Livia, DK, our news editor Michael Salmon who makes it all happen behind the scenes. Mark will be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.